This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is, for me, Alabama. Where's everybody else? Rhode Island. <laughs> Representing Connecticut. New Jersey. Massachusetts. And our and guest today is Jake Cohen. Jake, where are you? I'm in New York City. I'm still here. Nice. Oh, my God. The last holdout. Left behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like um, we've it's, fu- it's funny we're because just... I'm I'm born and raised in New York, so it's I see like everyone going to like their childhood homes and moving back in with the parents for a while and like I also live in the same building as my mother and my sister, so there was really like <laughs> nowhere to go. <laughs> yes. Um so Jake, as I said, Jake is our guest today. Jake is the editorial and test kitchen director of the Feed Feed, and you may recognize his voice because he is one of the hosts of the Feed Feed podcast here on HRN. And Jake, you just finished up season one, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank Woo-hoo. you. Thank Woo-hoo. you. How how has being a host of a podcast been going? I mean, you're like such a natural on video for um, the feed feed, but how has being a podcast host been um, and how has it been different for you? I think it's it's really been so nice and relaxing um, in the same sense of you think of someone who's a content creator, especially in food media, everything is so visually driven. So it's about photos, videos, the food all looks gorgeous. Even if it's like approachable and supposed to look rustic, it's rustic, but still gorgeous. Um, And the podcast is kind of this first time where you get to talk to these kind of huge names in food media and hear more so about like, how did they get there? Um, What is their thought process behind the recipe? How do they make things look gorgeous? What are the kind of like, emotional breakdowns they've had as they've tried to build up their career. And these are all people that like have been idols of mine, idols of most of the feed feed audience. Um, many of our editors like freak out because I'll try since our test kitchen is only two blocks away from heritage radio at Roberta's. Um, 
I try to like bring big names back to the office just to introduce them to everyone. And I remember um, when I brought Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen into the office, people like lost their shit. Um, and I was just talking to her about the fact that she like she does everything on her own and she doesn't really know what's next. She just wants to cook whatever she wants. And it, it's kind of getting that full view of someone in food. And we just recorded our first two episodes of season two. Um, and we'll, both of them, one, the first episode's with Gail Simmons from Top Chef and the second episode's with David Leibowitz, the cookbook author. And their stories are especially just like so interesting to see how they got to where they are and the kind of like just how everything fell into place. And they've obviously worked really hard um, and are such incredible um, masters of their craft in terms of, on David's case, like writing cookbooks and doing these deep dives into a subject and conveying that to the home cook on Gail's side of like being the liaison for restaurants. But to hear like their stories of what they were like or what it was like at the very beginning is just so, so empowering, inspirational, all the things that you kind of want and need to be hearing right now. Yeah, I was just curious as, you know, over the past month you've had to you and the feed feed team have had to shift, you know, away from the beautiful test kitchen and event space that you have and create all this content a little bit more remotely. Of course, you know, I feel like feed feed is similar to Patreon and that we're very lucky in that we are digital platforms and can keep doing what we're doing. But how have things changed for you sort of operationally and logistically? Yeah, I mean, luckily we're on Slack, so it's just we are talking every morning, connecting, seeing what everyone's going down. I think that the key part is that this is actually a busier time for most food publications, um, which is an interesting conversation because at the same point, you also have to have a larger look at what the food industry is like as a whole and what companies are kind of advertising at this time and what is appropriate versus uh, not. And right now our entire focus is just on empowering our audience as they are in this new normal in the same way that we are. So that's providing them with recipes that are a combination of what are the aspirational things that they want to learn now that they have the time and what are the kind of go-to pantry recipes that they can make with stuff they probably already have in their cupboards. Um, I think we're trying to be as diverse as our audience is and at the same time be super respectful to the climate. Jake, this is Katie. I have a question for you. Um, thinking back to January of 2020, before it became clear that COVID-19 was going to be the thing that shook up our entire media formatting and life in general. Vogue did their January 2020 issue of the magazine um, with no photographs. And this was, sorry, I should say Italian Vogue. So this was the Italian Vogue yeah, where for with the white sustainability, color. yep, they, and they did all the um, fashion shoots instead of having an actual photo shoot, they had artists, you know, doing paintings and other um, kinds of like displays of fashion without actually having to photograph them. And this was for reasons of sustainability at the time. And there was a lot of conversation about 
airplane flights. Um, and so, you know, kind of switching away from the big produced photo shoot was done for a different reason. But suddenly, you know, that seeming like something that might become a little bit more popular now um, for like a visual food media format in particular. Have you seen that starting to happen or do you see applications for the feed feed with something like that? I mean, 100%. The fact is we were already kind of just built on that since so many of our contributors, uh, content creators that we work with so closely are people that work for themselves or work from home and food is not necessarily their full-time job or if it is their full-time job, they're doing it remotely. Um, So we've been lucky in the sense that, and as someone who has worked at kind of big food publications that have had these insane shoots, both for digital as well as the concept of just thinking back when I was at Suburb Magazine of what would go into our cover shoots was insane. And it's so important because you have to think about this as an industry that's based on selling a magazine and the cover is what is going to get someone to pull it off the shelf and it seems wasteful to have all this for a a photo shoot, but at the same time, um, that is what will potentially sustain a huge number of people's jobs and potentially create more. Um, However, we're moving into this very low budget. People just want to, they don't need pretty food. They don't need those gorgeous kind of spreads. They just need to see something that looks like what they're going to cook for dinner. And as long as it's not like satirically ugly, um, it's fair game. Uh, I think a perfect example of that is the New York Times. Um, Susan Spungen, who was actually on the first episode of the Feed Feed podcast, who's an incredible cookbook author and food stylist, um, is not only just style, she's a constant stylist for the Times, She's styling the food and shooting it now for the magazine. Um, so this is a woman who, I mean, again, I could be totally wrong, but I would assume that she's using her iPhone and she's styling photos and now using iPhone pics and that's what's going in the New York Times. That's incredible. And it's like for somebody who's never worked in the publishing industry, can you talk about like a silver cover shoot and what went into that and what that looked like? Well, you would have a photographer who would have a very large budget um, because they're bringing all the equipment, cameras, lighting set up. They would have at least an assistant, if not two. Um, We had in-house props, but that would involve like the art team being present and they're the ones who are setting up what is the surface, what are the props, what are the color schemes, uh, where is there going to be room for text? are we using the props that we have or are we renting props? Um, like for, I can actually give another great example after this, but then you in the kitchen have, like I would typically be assigned to assist whatever the food stylist was. So it would be this big name food stylist who would come in with these gorgeous groceries that they would hand select from Italy um, and create these, whatever dishes were trying for the cover. Um, and the whole thing would take hours hours and hours in terms of like i remember there's this one shoot with fried chicken where literally we probably spent an hour just like rotating there were three pieces of fried chicken and we went through every potential combination of all the chicken fried just to see which one um so it's it's just a huge to do um another great example is i just right before we actually wrapped the day new york on pause got put into place um i just shot my cookbook at Feed Feed, actually. And 
that was like the same sort of production where it was myself and a team and it was a photographer with an assistant, a prop stylist who handled sourcing and renting all of the props, um, a food stylist with an assistant. I had another two assistants. Um, and of course, this is for shooting 100 recipes in six days. So you need that kind of uh, team. But just to think about the money that goes into the prop rentals, the food itself, the um, rental for the equipment, for the actual photography, in addition to the fact that everyone needs to get paid because this is their livelihood. Um, it's what goes into a photo is a lot. And it's always been that way. So it'll be interesting to see how things go. I know a lot of like publishers are now leaning on cookbook authors that also shoot. There's that kind of like blogger, there was that blogger push of just giving bloggers cookbook deals because you can give them a, a small advance um, as well as have them shoot and style their own cookbook. So it's just logistically much easier. And I think that's probably that, – that had like a huge push and then it kind of went away because the books are typically garbage since they, they look pretty. But it's – you have to be so much more selective when you're dealing with content creators because they need to have been vetted – by so many different kind of ways. When you think of people who kind of go the traditional route to write a cookbook and um, sell a proposal, they typically have not even accolades, but they have bylines and publications that require that they have some sort of clout when it comes to recipe development and their testing and their writing. Um, so it, it's it's always been the kind of trade-off between content and aesthetic and i think now we're in a time in which aesthetic does not matter at all and we are all about content we just need comfort and we need things that work that that makes me want to talk a little bit more about your cookbook and sort of the recipe development side of this because i agree like people when they buy a cookbook they implicitly they trust that those recipes are going to work for them so first, can you tell us a bit about yeah. the cookbook that's coming out that you've been working on? And then I would love to hear kind of about that recipe development and testing process. Yeah. Um, so it's called Jew-ish and it's going to be coming out March next year. Luckily, because of the fact that we got the shoot done in time, if not, who knows? I, the whole thing probably would have gotten pushed, but uh, time was really on my side on this one. And it's kind of all about modern Jewish recipes surrounding a kind of millennial approach to Shabbat, which is something that's near and dear to me. Um, I didn't grow up like very observant, observant or um, even having Shabbat with my family. But when I met my husband and the book is also it's like a quasi love story since it's it's this kind of blending of cultures and families. Um, I'm Ashkenazi, like classic New Yorker. Um, my husband is an Iraqi Persian Jew who's grew up in Florida. And the kind of gist is that when we met, like he didn't know what babka was. He didn't know what gefilte fish was. He had never like had any of these dishes. And likewise, I had never had any of these other inherently Jewish dishes from the diaspora that had just never been exposed to me. Uh, so we 
started to kind of figure out what Jewish identity was going to be for us. And that ended up not being like joining a synagogue, but instead uh, hosting Shabbat, which I was doing through this nonprofit called One Table, which is this incredible organization that I'm now actually on the board of um, that does just that in terms of helping empower people in their 20s and 30s to figure out a Shabbat practice that works for them. So it was something that I knew I always really wanted to write a cookbook. And this was just the thing that was closest to my identity that I wanted to write about. Um, And it just was very easy from there. A lot of the recipes were either dishes I've made at Shabbat or then recipes that I just kind of thought in my head of weird mashups of different either flavor profiles or things that you wouldn't really think would work with Jewish food that just do. Um, And then in the testing process, actually, I, I spent a year um, almost a year, more like nine months, um, developing and they were all pretty much tested at Shabbat's I was hosting. So I wanted to make sure that the recipes not only worked, but they worked in an entertaining setting since that's such a, like a huge part of not only this book, but of like what Jewish food and Jewish hospitality is. It's about kind of providing for others and nourishing others. Um, so like, for example, the dessert section is probably the largest of the book because there's a whole like thing about not only there this is a book for you but if you are entertaining all the time great you have all these recipes you also need like recipes for when you are a guest and the whole concept of like not showing up empty-handed and here are the recipes to make when you are a guest at someone else's table and need to bring something even if they don't ask uh jake this is hannah i have a question as a fellow new york jew which is I think if there's one thing um, we're like weirdly good at, it's um, feeding people in a crisis. Yeah. Um, and I would love to know what, like, if you if you could shout out like a, a particular dish or something that like brought you comfort that you cooked from home during these like weird quarantine Shabbats, because there is like a very kind of like nice synchronicity, especially with like Passover happening during all. I was of just this. gonna say <laughs> um, Passover was actually probably the most like important part because the Passover menu itself is inherently comforting. Um, and when you add on the concept of like, this was the first year and I typically do all the cooking for both nights, even if like one night with my, we don't even like split families. We've just continued to grow and it's my family, my husband's family and my husband's brother's wife's family. Who's also like New York Ashkenazi. So it's like three different families all together. Um, and we'll do everything from sometimes they'll, it'll just be all Ashkenazi food. It'll be all Persian food. It'll be a mix of the both. Um, and I think that the idea behind making a giant brisket for four people was so cathartic and comforting. And then we had brisket. And then the next day I made like I do, I do brisket pasta the next day, which is, I mean, cause we don't keep Passover with the exception of Seder. Um, so we just, use, which is like one of my favorite things I write about in the book of cooking pasta and then using the leftover brisket sauce as pasta sauce. Um, and yum. The, yeah, that's, that's a really great one. But, um, then the funny thing that I actually didn't make this year, mainly because I just cooked, I just cooked a year's worth of, Jewish holiday foods during my cookbook shoot. Um, and 
it, this was at the very beginning, and I'd say nothing beats matzo ball soup. Like that's truly always will be everyone. I feel like that's like the perfect that's like the perfect icebreaker question that everyone uses, and they always think they're gonna get something like wild from me. But the answer is like a Jew- <laughs> Jewish deli. It's like it's matzo ball soup, pastrami and rye, brisket, latke. It's like that is my deathbed meal. Um, and this year, actually, I didn't make matzo ball soup because I wanted to have this kind of hybrid seder where I made I made latkes, I made brisket, I made like a bunch of roasted vegetables, but I also wanted to have half, and I made dessert, which I can't say because it's this I, this one Passover dessert that I made that is, it's like, it's going to be the equivalent of like uh, Alison Roman's, the, like the, her cookies. Like this Passover dessert is going to be like the Passover dessert to end all. Um, and can't wait. It, yes. But the thing was, is that I wanted to have also the ability to kind of like support local restaurants that were still delivering and or serving um, in New York too. So I actually, I'm friends with uh, the owner of Shelsky's in Brooklyn, which I'm a big fan of theirs. And I literally, he dropped off matzo ball soup and gefilte fish and horseradish on his way to drop off his meal for his mother in the Upper East Side. And it was one of the best matzo ball soups ever. And I got to kind of get a loaf of gefilte fish from the gefilteria, which makes the best gefilte fish. And then the next night I got some stuff from La Nierkina, um, from Fanny Gerson's spot. And she made these like brisket stuffed tamales. And it, it was just a really nice way to kind of really go with the theme of what Passover means in the sense of community. That all sounds so great. And I, I cannot wait to get my hands on this book when it comes out because it just seems like it's going to be so many amazing things mashed up into one. And I also think that, well, I'm hopeful that when it does come out in March that we're in a very different place in the world then and people are really going to be wanting to gather. Um, hopefully it'll be safe then. And, and what a great kind of collection of recipes and ethos to put out in the world at that point. Um, yeah, that's that's the goal. Yeah. Um, well, let's take a really quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk more with Jake. And then we're going to challenge you to our little uh, virtual happy hour game that we have created out of thin air in the past couple of weeks. We'll be right back. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Okay, welcome back to HRN Happy Hour. We're here with our guest, Jake Cohen. And we were just talking a little bit about, you know, the past month or so. We've we've celebrated Passover. It's, you know, we've been about a month, month and a half into quarantine, lockdown, life. And um, Jake was talking a little bit about what he's been cooking and, and ordering in and things like that. But I'm curious, Jake, what are some other sort of like everyday things you've been loving to eat and drink? I've been making pasta probably four to five times a week. Um, every different, the only thing <laughs> that has to change is the shape. Other than that, everything else can say the same. Um, but it's been, I think it's been funny because <laughs> right. I can... 
I can see based on, that's one of the beautiful things of Feed Feed is that we can see like what people are cooking just based on the fact that I get tagged in people making my recipes. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, it's all been baking. I will say everyone is baking right now, um, as am I. But the, there were three recipes I developed and I actually developed them at the very beginning as these kind of concepts of what are going to be the ones that people can make from their pantry that are super just like, easy to make, great to eat in large quantities. And uh, the first is these chocolate brownie, like these brownie cookies with other like olive oil brownie cookies that are so easy, so good. Don't use up any butter if you can't find it um, and are like very customizable. The other one is this olive oil cake, actually two olive oil recipes because I don't know, I feel like everyone has oil, no one has butter. Um, and it's this like berry swirl olive oil cake that you can use like fresh fruit, any fresh fruit you have, any frozen fruit, like lose all of it and just like throw in chocolate chips. You could do whatever the hell you want. Um, and it's just like a really easy snacking cake that don't, doesn't need a frosting. And then these granola cookies, which are kind of like an oatmeal raisin cookie, but instead just like throwing in random random dry goods from your pantries, like whatever nuts or dried fruit you have. Those have been all like super, super popular. And I mean, other than that, pasta for sure. I fun. I never do this, but like I posted a picture. I made uh, rigatoni al vodka for dinner the other week and I posted yeah. a picture. It was actually this thing for God's Love We Deliver and like Gail Simmons had like challenged me to do this via Mike Anthony and uh, there was just like, I put the recipe in the caption, which I never do. Um, and there are like dozens of people who are making this recipe just from an Instagram caption, which I just never knew that people do or cook from that. Um, but they did and it's I, that's been kind of another little revelation that people are kind of just down for just anything simple as long as you could just walk them through. Yeah, totally. I got to say, I've been living on loaf cakes. Like, I probably made, like, a loaf cake, like, once every six months before quarantine, and now I make them, like, every couple days. Like, What is a loaf cake? Like like, like a, a like a banana bread, bread or like banana oh, bread oh, pumpkin. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, but, uh, I mean that's that's the idea behind snacking cakes. Snacking cakes are, are yeah, all exactly. in right now, and that's what like my the the swirl one is. It's like the only thing is instead of a loaf, it's an eight by eight because I need more than a loaf's worth of cake. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've I've been uh, I just made my second iteration of Aaron Jean McDowell's uh, banana bread that uses four bananas. Um, which is how many black ones I had on my counter, incidentally. That's the right number. And um, my, yeah, and it how has my like, banana bread also uses. I mean, I'm a big. This is always going to be an Erin uh, Stan account because she was also she was on the first episode of the Feed Feed podcast. She's mm-hmm. she sent me ice cream during quarantine. She was like she sent all of her friends ice cream during quarantine. Wow! wow. Oh my god, my hero. This banana bread it has like a demerara sugar crust on it, which is just like mm. makes it fun to eat like piece number three and four. Like sometimes when you are on your fourth piece of banana bread, you're like starting to get uncomfortable. But like <laughs> the crunchy sugar between your teeth, you're just like, this is fine. This is fresh. I'm good. Um, and then there's this yogurt. I've been um, kind of hoarding yogurt because I'm like, I don't know, it's not going to run out. But I just feel like more secure if I have several quarts of Greek yogurt. And yeah. um, there's this um, French yogurt cake on Epicurious 
that uses up a whole bunch of it and is really delicious. And you put in some lemon zest and that's just good. Cause you're like, I'm healthy. So, I can, I actually use food. yogurt in my banana bread. Mm, yeah. I do too. Yeah, you need so to, good. you need to have, it's like yogurt or buttermilk, like something, you need something with acidity. Dang, yeah. I just want to humble brag that on Monday I made banana bread with a tahini chocolate swirl and yeah. it was transcendent. <laughs> well, right. I that's actually, don't think I could replicate it again because I just made it. <laughs> that's actually the, the, the worst part is that I have, um, I left, I mean, in this funny enough, since I, we had made everyone else work from home that last week um, at Feed Feed of when like New York was starting to kind of blow up. And that was when I was shooting my cookbook too. So it was, it worked out well in the sense of like, it was a small team just at Feed Feed. Um, But at the last day, I was kind of not only wrapping up a shoot and cleaning up, but also cleaning up in the sense of no one's going to be here for who knows how long. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, and at this rate that that had that like week two weeks i just started driving to work um just because i was i'm a lunatic and jewish hypochondriac so i stuffed my car with kind of whatever whatever i could in the sense of cleaning out the fridges because everything's going to go bad and the last thing i need is like a the power to go out or something and or B, it just like rots. And then we'd get back to this like fridge of mold. So I cleared out most of everything, took what I could. Um, but the thing that I forgot is I had this giant tub, like an industrial tub of tahini at the <gasps> office. No. And now in my fridge, I like, so I have a ton of seed and milk tahini, but it's only the herb tahini. So it's like wonderful for cooking, but I can't bake with it because it just has like random woody herbs blended in. Hmm. Woody Earl. A, lo- a, a, long, a long story for a very, a very minor problem. <laughs> it is weird, though. I like packed up my stuff to go on maternity leave, thinking like I would be back in April, and I was obviously not back in April. And now I'm just like, oh, I, I didn't pack thinking I would be gone indefinitely. Like, definitely have some stuff there that I thought I'd be getting back to. Yeah. Also, there's okay. all this online yoga. My yoga mats in the office, like. Really, I was really on top of it. So we talked yeah. about like quarantine eats, but what about since it's happy hour? What are what is everyone drinking now, or just in general? So it's funny. Um, I actually don't drink. Um, I'm I'm as New York Mag calls Cali sober. So <laughs> it's this it's this it's this funny situation where I do actually have a, like a full bar. Um, but we don't, aren't drinking cocktails. It's been bad for the other end of Cali sober in the sense of when you're just home doing nothing and making snacking cakes. Um, but my, my, like I said, my sister's fiance is this, works at Google and is this like nerd engineer. Um, he refuses, he's, he's not Jewish, but we always joke that he's the most Jewish one of us all. He refuses to buy a soda stream, so he gets industrial canisters of carbon dioxide and has, like, finagled a way to, like, use old, like, Diet Coke bottles to make his own <laughs> seltzer. Okay, so this we is have... what I do, because I really missed having, having sparkling water. 
I mean, that's it. That's when I tell you there, it's really, it's really, really bad when you hear it. And we try not to say this too often to people. Um, but my husband refuses to drink flat water. He will only drink sparkling water or coconut water and nothing else. Wow. And it's, it's, it's a very expensive habit, but we are, we are getting by. It's, I mean, I, I think that our cocktail of choice is like soda and bitters. So mm-hmm. luckily we have tons of sparkling water and I have tons of bitters and then we call it a day. I think that's the way to go. Um, it makes me think of, have you seen the the book that's coming out by Julia Bainbridge? That's um, Of course. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. It looks, and the cover is incredible. The artwork they did there is incredible. Gorgeous. Yeah. Um, well, what about everybody else? What's, what's in your glass? Uh, at this point, nothing, because that's oh. a problem that I have. Uh, I always <laughs> consume my happy hour beverage way too early and last week when it was the margarita that was just an issue <laughs> this this week this week it's the uh, it's taproot brewing company's doppelbach taproot is one of the breweries that is on the island i currently inhabit nice i'm um i had well i already had a lunch beer i had lunch at like three forty-five, um and uh i was ready so i had a half of a tributary brute ipa um, our good friend Todd Mott in Kittery, Maine, um, is still making amazing beers. There's, if you're in that area, or if you're not, the release of Mott the Lesser is coming up, and they're doing an online lottery, and they will hold it for you for up to six months from the pickup date. If you are um, out of state, they, you know, Maine does not want people who are not feeling well to come in, and there's a 14-day quarantine, so just wait and pick it up in a while. It's a good aging beer anyway, but. That was my lunch beer, and now I'm double fisting a Samti and a Negroni. <laughs> Happy Thursday. I love it. <laughs> Hannah, um, I have um, uh, demolished a glass of Vino Verde, um, which was very nice. Nothing fancy. We are out of gin. Me too. No. It's no. We finished the liter and a half. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> oh. oh boy. The funny thing is, is that I'm going through my vodka like crazy because of olive vodka. Because of olive vodka. <laughs> so it's become this thing where I'm almost out. And I'm gonna have to start to figure whether I start using flavored vodka or gin to make the sauce. Ooh. Whoa! No yeah. No, I want to hear about pasta a la gin. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident it would still be delicious. Yeah. I don't know how wacky do you go on those vodka flavors because I want to hear about your like chocolate <laughs> ganache mean, vodka penne. It's pinnacle whipped. No, I'm kidding. Um, oh no! It's it is it's a little wow. too. It's like a what is it? It's Belvedere. It's the Belvedere peach. So I think it's a little. Little extra for that, but it's not. Yeah, it's not first choice. Throw some basil in there. That's true. It does. Well, I feel like eventually, yeah, in the summer season, that will feel right. For sure. For sure. <laughs> that for will sure. feel right. I'm gonna save that one for pie crust. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Ooh. Um, Dylan, you ran to get a um, cider. I am drinking a cider. I'm drinking a West County cider called Jubilee. And my sister got me a cider club for my birthday, and this is my my latest gift from there, and it's very good. That sounds great. 
Dylan, do you have an update for us from last week? Because we were brainstorming some mm. cocktails for you. Yes, I do. Um, I made myself a simple syrup in a jar. So that was a great first step towards my cocktail journey. And I made myself a nice mezcal, simple syrup, fresh grapefruit co- cocktail um, mm. after we talked last week. So that was that was a big success. And we'll see. I'll keep you updated for next week. That sounds awesome. It was, I was good, but you know, you don't get as much juice as you think out of an entire grapefruit. I thought I was going to make enough for me and my sister and then put enough alcohol for two people. And then it was just all for me because there was not a lot of, not that much liquid in that. (laughs) Yeah. Blame the grapefruit. Yeah. But you can just cover it up with simple syrup and you don't even know how much you're drinking. (laughs) I'm having a real problem with like not being able to find limes down here that have any juice in them at all. Like those hard dry line not not great for me um i right now i'm drinking a bottle of pusta libre p-u-s-z-t-a it's a red dry red but it's like pretty funky and tart from austria and it's quite delicious this is from my uh brooklyn wine stash that Um, arrived through no don't worry about it <laughs> carried it from brooklyn yeah yes Just. Brooklyn, but that only lasted for a little while so yeah <laughs> the flying fairies are bringing us more um yeah so, okay so that this has all been great and i have like so many more food and drink ideas now and jake i'm with you we've been we've been slowly moving to the pasta routine and like have been doing like alfredo and stuff like that so it's just so hard to get meat these days and like i'm only so i haven't i mean i think the 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 part i kind of left out of this entire conversation is i physically haven't left my building in three weeks now um just because like there's no reason if if there's no need to i would rather not um especially since i live in queens and this is like the epicenter of all of the madness but with that comes the kind of like super, I don't know, hustle to get a like fresh director food kick slot. I'm like, right. Is that what you take? Fresh direct Hunger Games is like a huge part Truly. Of Though the big revelation has been Norwich Meadow Farms from the green market is mm. like doing house deliveries. So I have my delivery coming tomorrow. You can only get one like. The, when it first launched, you only you have to wait like two weeks. Now you only have to wait wait a week to get your delivery. So that's been nice to at least have like a fresh produce. That's awesome. Um, okay, so it's the time of the show where um, Jake, we have a new little game we've been playing because normally we would do trivia, but we realized we have an opportunity um, since we're not all physically in the same space that we can play a version of 20 questions with our guests. So what that means is that in the room that you're in, you're going to look around and you're going to find an object. Once you have that in your mind, let us know. And then we're going to play 20 questions and try to figure out what that object is. So let us know when you're ready. Okay. Okay. And we can only ask yes or no questions and I'm going to keep count. We only have 20 questions. Take it away, anyone. <laughs> Is it decor? No. All right. 
almost every week it's been decor, so I just figured <laughs> I should start there. <laughs> is it consumable? No. What Are else you is there? <laughs> That's not a question. Are you in your kitchen? Yes. Is it in the kitchen or is he in the kitchen? <laughs> no, wait, I don't. That seems all right. Well, I asked if he was in the kitchen, assuming that the object would be in the same room as it him. could be an that open floor plan, and now we have to waste an entire question on the floor plan of his house. <laughs> Let us fight about the questions for a minute. Is it edible? I already asked that. <laughs> oh shit! I'm sorry. Redacted. Redacted. Count it. The answer is no. Count it. Well, that's like broader. If it's not consumable, it's not edible. Is it bigger than a bread box? Uh, uh, I mean, I think that uh, pick another <laughs> pick another item to have the comparison to. Is it Wait, bigger? Why? Just because I feel like a bread box is so vague in terms of it's not like there's <laughs> no, not like no, a no, standard. He's, he's misleading you. He box. obviously <laughs> picked <laughs> bread box. <laughs> Boom, we're done. I do not That's have right. a bread box. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know everyone's home with their parents is that there are bread boxes. Yeah. <laughs> is it bigger than your head? Yes. Are you saying okay. Jake's head is about as big as a bread box? <laughs> no, I just went for a different measurement. <laughs> Is it a tool? Is... You could say. Okay. Do you apply heat to it? Yes. Hmm. Is it a Dutch oven? Yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's those lacrosses, you know, they just catch your eye, and all of a sudden you want to be like, oh. 100%. That's my it's, a, it's a big red lacrosses. Yay! Oh, so guess who owes us sponsorship dollars now? <laughs> we love Le Creuset. This episode is brought to you by Le Creuset. <laughs> Inv- invoice them. Um, Kai, how many questions was that? I it was eight or nine. Nine. No, is that a record? Really good job. I think it is. We had to Why, cheat yeah? last week to get it under twenty-one. Oh god, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't cheating. Nicely done. Um, wow. Jake, will you send us a picture of your looker say so we can use it as the episode art? Of course. Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, will you spend so- will you spend hours food styling that image for us? I will I will not. It will be empty. <laughs> Actually I am cooking something in it tonight, so maybe. Oh, nice. You might get it, you might get lucky. Um, well Jake, tell us what you you gave us a little bit of a tease for what's coming up on the podcast, but any other things we should keep our eye on for new content from the feed feed or any, any news coming down the pipeline? I mean, it's going to be more of the same. I think looking forward, even like what, what the world is going to look like post quarantine, which I, I, again, I am, I'm trying to be an optimist, but I also think that this is going to change for a long time, how we cook, how we digest content, all of that. So I think we are still going to be just focused on helping people just have recipes for empowering them in the kitchen. And then after restaurants reopen, it's going to be figuring out how we can support that. I mean, like right now we are trying to pivot a lot of our influencer campaigns to offer work to chefs that are out of work. Um, And 
I think it's going to be a lot of kind of that thought going forward is how can we support this industry so it comes back stronger than ever when all odds are against it. Totally. Yeah, that's great. I think we are you know in the same boat as you and just trying to stay on top of what's going on and, and provide content that's helpful to people. And, um, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about how some of our content is really focused on covering the news aspect of this and the impact on the food system. And then a lot of the content we do, which I think, you know, your podcast falls in this category is like offering people some use, really useful information, but also maybe a little bit of an escape from the 24 or seven news cycle. And I think a lot of people are finding that escape in their kitchen. So thanks for doing what you do and for introducing us to um, your guests who I think are great people to be following along right now to get some nice recipe inspiration and and, um, to helping build this community around food. It's, It's awesome. And I guess my last kind of note about where everything's going is I feel like this has been, a, rightfully so, an existential crisis for people in every corner of the country. Um, so I will would not be surprised if as people are starting to cook at home, they're starting to realize kind of these passions for food or drink or hospitality or any kind of sense of creativity around the kind of food landscape and what that's going to look like post COVID. I I would have no doubt that there's going to be a whole new realm and class of chefs, content creators, podcast hosts, bread bakers, et cetera, um, who only discovered it because this situation made them rethink what is important and what they actually want to be doing. Yeah. That's something great to keep in mind. Like, I think you're right. I think we're talking to a whole new group of people right now, which is exciting. It's a, it's an opportunity for us for sure. Well, everyone, thanks so much for circling around our laptops for happy hour. And Jake, thank you so much for being our guest of honor this week. Truly. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll look forward to that Le Creuset photo and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm. Till next week. Thanks, Jake. HR and Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.